Namaskaram. Today I'm going to be talking about verse um, 8 of of Uludunapadu. Just to get the continuity, in the previous verse, uh, verse 7, what Bhagavan said is, though the world and awareness and in this context, awareness is referring to ego or mind, the awareness that knows the world. So, though the world and awareness arise and subside simultaneously, the world shines by awareness. That is, the, the, the world is the object, the awareness, in other words, the ego, is the subject. But subject and objects arise and subside simultaneously. Um that is only when we are aware of objects are we the subject. Uh, so they arise simultaneously, but the world, the objects, shine only by ourselves, the subject. The, um, <clears throat> that meaning of that uh, first sentence. And then in the second sentence, he says, only that which shines without appearing or disappearing as the place for the appearing and disappearing of the world and awareness is the substance, which is the whole. The word he uses here for substance is poral, which is um, uh, a word, the the closest equivalent in any other language is the term vastu in Sanskrit. Um, It has, the meaning of poral depends on the context. In, In some context, it just means anything, any object. But in the context, in a philosophical context, it means the real substance, the reality. Um, so in other words, Porl is referring to the ultimate reality. What, but that which appears as all this, the ultimate substance, uh, in other words, Brahman. Um, so Bhagavan is here define, defining what is uh, what is the real substance, what is the reality. It is that which shines without ever appearing or disappearing as the as the uh, Eden. Eden means the place or the space or the expanse, location, site or ground for the appearing and disappearing of the world uh, and awareness. <clears throat> that is just like the screen is the, is the base on which uh, pictures, cinema pictures appear or disappear. This is the, the ultimate ground, the ultimate reality, and that which shines forever. So that is what he means by poral, uh, the, the, <clears throat> that of which all things are constituted, from which they all arise, into which they all subside, and which is the sole reality of everything. Um, just to give a little bit more idea of the importance of this word poral, there are um, in all six verses in Uludunapadu, in which Bhagavan uses this term poral. The first one is in the first Mangalam verse, uh, in which he talks about Ulla poral. Ulla poral means the existing substance. Uh, uh, um, and and it, he uses it, Ulla poral, as a synonym for Ulladu, that which exists. Um, so what he says in the first Mangalam verse is, um, uh, uh, <clears throat> Ulladu, Alladu, Ulla Unavu, Ulla Do. 
if what exists were not, would existing awareness exist? Since the existing substance exists in the heart without thought, how to think of the existing substance, which is called heart? Uh, that's a, a question, and then he gives the answer. Um, uh, being in the heart as it is, alone is thinking. That means alone is meditating on that. We can meditate on, on Brahman, on the, the ultimate reality, only by being in the heart as it is. Uh, una, no, no, this to be the case, uh, or, or no, this, uh, this, um, this ultimate reality, uh, 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 or ulla do. So that's the, this is the first instance where he uses this term ulla uh, poral. Then, he, as I say, he uses it again in verse seven. Uh, in verse seven, he defines what the poral is. It's that which exists without appearing or disappearing as the base for the appearing and disappearing of both subject and object. Then in verse eight, he, he uses this term uh, poral. I will, I will, because I'm going to be talking about this main verse I'm going to be talking about today. I won't go into that in detail now. I'll just mention a few other places where Bhagavan uses this term, just to give an idea of the significance of this term in Bhagavan's uh, teachings. So after verse eight, the next place where Bhagavan uses this term, well, he uses the, the word poral in verse 28, but that we shouldn't confuse. There he's simply using it in the sense of uh, an object, just like, um, um, just like, um, like sinking in water to see some object that has fallen in, like sinking, wanting to see some object that has fallen in water. It's in that sense that he uses it there. Um, so he's using it as part of an analogy for sinking within to um, uh, to know what we to know the source from which we have risen. Um, so we can discard verse twenty eight. That is a poral used in a different sense. The next verse in which he uses this term poral um, in in the in the deeper sense is in verse thirty. What he says in verse thirty is. Um, nana ena manum ul nadi ulum nanave. That means as soon as the mind reaches the heart, inwardly investigating who am I, nanam avan tale nanum ura. When he who is I dies, that means when ego dies, that implies that. By reaching the heart, the ego will die. Na 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 tondrum onju tanaha. One thing appears spontaneously as I am I. Tondrinum nanandrum. Though it appears, it is not I. What he means by saying it is not I, it is not ego. That, that the I that appears and disappears is ego. But this is this, though it is said that it appears, it's actually what is a very existing. It, it is obscured. So long as we rise and stand as ego, we are not aware of ourselves 
as the as what we actually are, which is just the pure I am, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. So when this when ego is eradicated, the underlying reality the, um, uh, uh, from which it rises and into which it subsides, that seems to appear. That is like uh, if there are. Um, if there are clouds covering the sun, if the clouds are blown away, the sun appears. But actually, the sun was always shining there. Even though the clouds were obscuring it, the light of the sun was still coming through the clouds and illumining the world. So the sun doesn't really appear. It's only from our perspective that it appears. Um, so Bhagavan says, though it appears, it is not I. And then in the last sentence, he says, um, Porul pundram adu, tanam porul. That means it is the whole. Pundram means um, is a Tamil uh, word derived from the Sanskrit word purna. So it means the, the infinite whole. So um, adu pundram, uh, that, that is the, um, the whole, porul, the, the substance. Tanam uh, poral, the substance that is oneself. So uh, he, he's using poral. He's saying that which appears as I am I, in other words, our own real nature, is the ultimate reality. That's why he says tanam poral. It is that uh, uh, substance or reality, real substance that is oneself. Well, that is what we actually are. And uh, the significance of the term I am I is the I that dies is ego. That is the false awareness. I am this or I am that. I am this body. I am such and such a person. I am uh, Michael or I am Kumar or I am whoever. That That is uh, ego. But um, what, what we actually are is not anything, is not any object, not any, um, that this, this person, this body, this person we take ourselves to be, all the five sheaths are objects, but we are not any object. We're not any phenomenon. What we are is only ourselves. We are nothing other than that fundamental awareness, I am. So I am I means what I actually am is only myself, only I, nothing other than I. So this, this term, I am I, has a very deep significance. Unfortunately, in most English books, and this is a term that Bhagavan uses frequently. In so many verses, he uses the term I am I. But it has been misinterpreted in English books as I hyphen I, which doesn't actually mean anything. Whereas I am I, though it seems to be very obvious to say I am I, but it seems to be tautological, it actually has a very deep significance. Because what Bhagavan is saying is we are not this or that. We are not anything other than ourself. What we actually are is only I and nothing other than I. Um, and that which, so that which appears as I am I is our own real nature. And it is the, it is the uh, Pundra, it is the Purnavastu, Poral Pundram we can take as Purnavastu, it is the whole uh, uh, substance that is the, the the entirety of all that is, and it is the substance of all that is, and that substance is oneself. So this is uh, this is an, another important place where he uses this term "poral," 
And then again in um, the next place is in verse 34. Um, what he says in verse 34 is, Endrum evacum il by ullaporal, Andru, Andrum ullatu, ul unandu, nile nedadu. That means not standing firmly, knowing the substance which always exists for everyone as, as nature. That means as one's real nature. Um, in the mind that merges within. That is how to know and to be that, how to know that substance only by merging within. So instead of, instead of uh, abiding firmly or being as we actually are, by knowing the substance that we actually are, with, uh, 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 in the mind that merges within, and that substance, it exists for everyone as their own real nature. That which is shiny in the heart of each one of us as I am, that is the pearl. That is what we should know and be. So instead of knowing and being that, uh, quarreling, saying, uh, it, uh, 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 undu indru, it is, it is not. It exists, it does not exist. Uru aru. Uh, it has uh, a form formless. In other words, it is it is it is a form. It is formless. Uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew, Irendu, Andrew. Uh, one, two, neither is delusion. Is Andre Sunday idol? That means quarrelling. Thus, Maya Charaku. This is this is Maya mischief. It's mischief born of Maya. Um, so, uh, the, what Bhagavan, the aim of Uludunapadu, that is, what is Uludu means what actually exists. What actually exists, as Bhagavan indicated in the first Mangalam verse, that is what is also called Ullaporal, the existing substance. So, the substance that what we, what we have to know is what actually exists, and that is our own real nature. As he says here, uh, Endrum always. Ever come for everyone, yield by as nature, ullaporal, the, 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 the reality, the, the substance that exists as the nature, that exists for everyone as their own nature, but always exists for everyone as their own nature. And then in the um, next verse, verse 35, also he uses this term, poral. Um, what he says in verse 35 is, Sidumai ul porole tendu irital sidi. That means um, knowing, uh, well, irital means being. Being, knowing the substance, which Sidumai uh, ul, uh, which exists as accomplished, sidi. Uh, that alone is accomplishment. That is the word sidi. Uh, Siddham means what is accomplished. Siddhi means accomplishment. Um, the word Siddhi is also used for um, for magical or supernatural powers that uh, some yogis and tantricas try to gain. They try to gain supernatural powers. Um, they may claim that they're trying to do so for the good of the world, but uh, Bhagavan... Um, uh, Bhagavan uh, strongly indicated but seeking siddhis is is not genuine spirituality it is a de it is a 
it is a deviation from the path because all the power is in the hands of God. As there are several verses in um, in Uludunapto and Abundam where Bhagavan um, uh, um, disparages those who seek um, cities. Uh, he compares them to the Gopram Tangi, uh, but that is a, a, a plaster figure near the top of a gopram who seems to be supporting the top of a gopram, but is actually supported by the gopram. And he also compares them to a, um, a disabled person who cannot even stand unsupported, who says, if someone will help me to stand, what are my enemies before me? So Bhagavan is saying, that is, we are all sustained by that divine power we are all animated by that divine power, not knowing that if we seek to gain power, uh, um, and always those who seek to gain power, generally they say they're trying to do it for the good of the world. That Bhagavan says, let the world be taken care of by God. So Bhagavan doesn't approve of trying to acquire um, supernatural powers. So he refers to that here by saying, uh, in the second sentence of this verse, after saying that the real Siddhi is just knowing and being what actually exists, the, the, the reality which is ever attained. So knowing and being that, that, that reality, that portal which is ever attained, that is the true Siddhi. Then he says, Pira Siddhi Allah, all other Siddhis, Sopnam are Siddhi Galay. They are mere uh, 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 cities achieved, uh, acquired in a dream. This this refers here. We can take city as referring to the um, to these magical powers that some yogis try and acquire. We can also take it to mean any worldly accomplishment. If we um, if we uh, are very successful in business and earn a lot of money, or if we um, if we are successful in politics and rise to the top of uh, become the president of the United States or something, or if we are, are very successful in the world of academia, if we become a renowned scientist or philosopher or whatever, all these worldly accomplishments, they are just accomplishments achieved in a dream. None of them are real. That means, uh, so whatever we may achieve in this life, we may be, we may be um, <clears throat> uh, Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk and have so many hundreds of billions of dollars. But all these hundreds of billion dollars, when this life comes to an end, it's all going to end just like a dream. So whatever we may achieve in this life, uh, whatever wealth or uh, political power or status or whatever we may achieve, it is all just achievements in a dream. It is of no value whatsoever. So then Bhagavan says, Nidre Vittu, sorry, yes, Nidre Vittu Ondal Ave Mayo, if one wakes up, leaving sleep, are they real? That's a rhetorical question. Obviously, they're not real. Unme nile nindru poime tienda tiangu varo. Will those who, standing in the real state, have left unreality be deluded? Tear. 
know this. So uh, um, I referred to all these verses just to show how Bhagavan uses this word poral. Poral is the ultimate reality. It is what we actually are. And the aim of following Bhagavan's path is to know and to be that. That's why in this verse he talks about, he says that alone is the true accomplishment. Knowing and being that poral is the true accomplishment. So I, as I say, I talked about all these just to put this word, um, to make clear what this word poral means. So, um, uh, uh, as I say, in verse 7, Bhagavan ends by saying, defining what is poral. It is only that which shines without appearing or disappearing as the as the place or space or the ground for the appearing and disappearing of the world and ego, the awareness that knows the world, is poral, the real substance or vastu, which is pundram, which is the infinite whole or pūna. So having said that, the next question may be, oh, if that is the, um, if that is the, um, if that is the reality, if that alone is the reality, how are we to see that or how are we to know that? So in the next verse, Bhagavan talks about the means by which we can we can uh, we can see that or see see here is obviously used in a metaphorical sense. We can't see it as an object. He means to know it. So generally, um, generally, <clears throat> because that that real substance is beyond human conception we in order to relate to it we uh we attribute to it a name and a form we call it um vishnu or shiva or rama or krishna or god or allah or whatever we 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 have some conception of it in our mind and we take it to be something other than ourselves because I'm such a small little creature. That is the big, vast, infinite whole. So how can I be that? That must is infinitely greater than me. I am. My power is very limited. That has unlimited power. That has unlimited knowledge. It's all knowing, all powerful, omnibenevolent. It's all loving. All, all um, it, whereas. Uh, I have very limited power, very limited knowledge, and I only I have limited likes and uh, some things I like, some things I dislike. So I, um, yeah, uh, we seem to be something separate from that because we have limited ourselves. So it is it is very natural for people to get, to uh, attribute a name and a form to that reality and to worship it. So that is what Bhagavan talks about in the first half of this verse. What he says in the, in the first half of the verse is, Epe itu ebruvil etinum are pe uruvil aporole kanvari adu. What that means is, um, oh, this incidentally is one of the most Frequently misinterpreted verses in Uludunapdu, but I'll I'll first talk about the correct interpretation, and then I'll talk about the other interpretation. So the correct interpretation is, "Epe um, itu," uh, um, giving whatever name, "Evuruvil," in whatever form, 
etinum, worshipping, ah, whoever. So the first clause means whoever worships in whatever form, giving whatever name. Um, he doesn't say worshipping what, but in the first half of the sentence, but then he goes on to say, adu, aporole. Uh, aporole means that poral, that uh, real substance. Um, and adu means that. Aporole means that real substance. Peruruvil, kanvari. That is the way. Kanvari means, uh, kanvari means the way to see. That is the way to see that substance, that poral, peruruvil, in name and form. So if you worship God in if you if you take that reality to be God and worship it, him in name and form, he appears that's the way to see him in name and form. But is that the real seeing? No. As he indicates in the second half of the verse, he because he begins the second sentence of the verse by saying, Ayinum. Ayinum means however. Um <coughs> So he's making a contrast. In the first half of the verse, he's talking about one type of seeing, seeing in name and form. In the second half, he's talking about what is the real seeing. So ayinum, this, as, as I said, ayinum means however. It's a contrast. Ayinum, am me porlin unmeil tan unmeine ondu. Odungi ondru tale unmail kanal una. What that means is we have to, to to interpret this correctly. We have to slightly uh, rearrange the order of words because um, some in many translations they translate this um, the first cl clause am meiporalin unmail tan unmaine ondu. In many translations it's translated as. Um, Knowing, uh, um, <clears throat> um, knowing or investigating the re uh, how it's in translated generally is knowing the reality of knowing one's own reality in the reality of that real thing. How can you know your reality in the reality of something else? It doesn't make any clear sense. What actually, if we rearrange the words. It it uh, it the sentence becomes ayinum tan unmayene ondu, knowing or investigating one's own reality, the reality of oneself. Am may porlin unmail odungi ondu tale. So it's connected with the later. Odungi means um means uh um uh. uh uh, subside, uh, dissolving or subsiding and dissolving uh, in the reality of that real substance, um, <coughs> um, um, becoming one, that is, uh, by knowing one's own reality, one thereby uh, subsides and dissolves in, in that, in the reality of that true substance. And and becomes one with it, Andrew uh, Tale, uh, unmail carnal. That is seeing in reality. Uh, una no. So he's there. Are two types of seeing he's talking about here. In the first verse, 
he's talking about seeing in name and form. In the second verse, in second sentence, the second half of the verse, he's talking about seeing in reality. Seeing in reality means seeing as it actually is. So if you want to know the reality as, we, as it actually is, how can we do so? We first have to re-investigate the reality of, of ourselves. Who am I? We need, to, we need to find out what we actually are. That is, we, we, as ego, we're aware of ourselves as I am this person. But that is not what we actually are. What we actually are is that uh, puddle, that underlying reality that, that ever shines as the pure awareness I am. That is what we actually are. That's what he refers to here as tan uh, uh, sorry, tan one's, one's own reality, the reality of oneself. So if we on do can mean investigating, it can also mean knowing. Uh, so investigating and knowing the reality of oneself, thereby dissolving in the reality of that true substance. In other words, um, we dissolve in that as it actually is. Not in, whereas in the first verse, he's talking about the, the name and form that we attribute to that and worshipping that. He, he's talking about that when he said the reality of that true substance, and may poddle in unmail, he means that real substance as it actually is. So we will dissolve in that only when we know the reality of ourself, because the reality of ourself is that the reality of that real uh, true substance, because what we actually are is only that true substance. So by investigating and knowing ourselves, we thereby dissolve in that and we become one with that, Andrew Talley, we merge or become one with that. And that alone is seeing it in reality. In other words, we can know the reality only by being the reality. And in order to be the reality, we need to subside and dissolve back into our source, because that reality is the source from which we have risen as ego. That is the implication. However, as I say, this verse is one of the most commonly misinterpreted uh, verses. The reason for the misinterpretation is the, the term in the first sentence, per uruvil. The sense in which Bhagavad, that is, the per means uh, name, uru means form. Ill is generally, I mean, the simplest explanation of ill, it is the locative case ending. It means in name and form. Just like he said earlier, um, whoever worships uh, in whatever form, you worship it in form. So there, there, ill refers to the locative case ending. You're worshiping in in form. Um, it's not literally uh, locative, but it's a metaphorical. Like when we, in, 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 just like in English, we say worshiping in form. That means seeing it as a form and worshiping it accordingly. It, in the same sense, the locative is used in Tamil. So there it's clearly, ill is clearly used as a locative. Likewise, in the, um, in the second half of the verse, in the second sentence of the verse, when he says, ill again there means, uh, is a locative case ending in the reality of that real substance. Um, and again, when he says, that means seeing in reality. 
So in all these cases, he's using ill as a locative case ending. We should understand perururuvil in the same sense. It is a locative case ending. However, it can be interpreted differently. That is, ill can be interpreted as a in two other senses. Ivory can be interpreted as a poetic abbreviation of um, uh, ilamal. Ilamal means without. Uh, so peruru vilamal would mean um, seeing it without name and form. That is definitely wrong. Um, <clears throat> we can also take uh, um, um, uh, that ill, we can also take it to mean ilada, in which case we have per uru vilada aporale. That all that is saying is that the, the reality is without name and form; it is devoid of name and form. That is true, but the point of this verse is it's not talking about whether the reality is with name and form or not. That that is we, we, when he from the previous verse. When he says that from which uh, that that which always shines without appearing and disappearing as the ground for the appearing of and disappearing of the world and and, and the knower of the world, the awareness that knows the world, we should understand that that pearl is without form because all, all forms are what constitute the world. So, um, since he and forms appear and disappear, no form is constant. It's constant. So we we are expected to understand, but that poral is nameless and formless. That's why he says he begins this eper itu. Itu means giving or placing or putting, imposing upon it a name, um, uh, and seeing it in form. It's not actually a form, but we see it in form. We see it as a form. So that that reality. We can. It is not wrong to take peruru take peruru as meaning peruru vilada. It's not wrong in the sense that that reality is without is is nameless and formless. That is correct. But that is not the intention with which Bhagavan used it here, because here Bhagavan is contrasting two types of seeing. The first type of seeing is seeing in name and form. The second type of seeing is seeing in reality, seeing as it actually is. So if we see God in name and form, we are not seeing him as he actually is. We are seeing him as, as Bhagavan says later in verse 20, seeing God without seeing oneself or leaving oneself who sees, seeing God is seeing only a manamayamam kakshi, a mental vision. So the the, um, the the correct interpretation of will here is in name and form. We can take a, a secondary meaning as being nameless and formless. So we are seeing that nameless and formless reality in name and form. But we so we we can we can bracket off nameless and formless and take that as yes, it is nameless and formless. So that is not wrong. What is wrong is the interpretation that many people have given, which is peruru vilamal or peruru vilada, which means without name and form. If the, if it were if Bhagavan was if that were the meaning intended by Bhagavan, what he would be saying is whoever worships 
um, that in, in whatever form, giving whatever name, that is the way to uh, see that reality without name and form. If that were Bhagavan's intention, why would he then say, I in um, however, and then talk about uh, uh, what is true seeing? Obviously, the seeing he's talking about in the first sentence is not the true seeing. So, seeing without name and form is, see is the true seeing. So, that cannot be the intention of Bhagavan. Bhagavan did not mean, but that is the way to uh, see it in name and form. Some people then say, oh no, but Bhagavan has said that if you, for example, in Upadesh India, Bhagavan has said that if you, um, if you worship God in name and form, um, uh, if your worship is Nishkamiya and you're doing for the love of God, that will purify the mind and show the way to liberation. So indirectly, this can also be a way to see it in reality. Yes, ultimately, if we do worship with true devotion, God in name and form, eventually we, our mind will be purified to the extent to which we will be able to understand. Since God is that Puna, that uh, Pundram, the infinite whole, how can I be anything other than God? So God must be the reality of myself, my own real substance. Must God must be what I actually am. As Bhagavan says in verse um, 24 of Upadesha Undia, um, that is, uh, by existing nature, that is in their na real nature as, as mere existence, God and soul are one poral, one substance. So yes, he is our own substance. So so yes, if we if we uh, worship him in name and form, that will purify our mind. We will thereby come to know, recognize that God cannot be anything other than myself. So in order to know God, how should I meditate upon him? As Bhagavan says in verse 8 of Upadesha Undia, um, Anniya Bhavatin Abhanahamahum Ananya Bhavame Undipara Anaitinam Utamum Undipara. That is, rather than worshipping God, rather than meditating on God as Anya, as something other than ourself, meditating on him as not other than ourself, with the understanding that he is I, that is the best of all. And if we meditate upon him thus, as he says in the next verse, verse 9 of Upadeshundia, by the strength of that meditation, by the strength of meditating on him as not other than ourselves, means self-attentiveness. So what he means by Ananya Baba, Avan Aham Ahum Ananya Babam, that means meditating on him as not other than oneself, Avan Aham Ahum means in which he is I, that implies with the understanding that he is I. So if we understand that God is I, how sh what's the best way to meditate upon God? Not to meditate upon him as something other than ourselves, to meditate upon him as I alone. So by in the next verse he says, um, Baba Balatinal, by the strength of that meditation, that implies by the strength of that Ananya Baba, by the strength of that self-attentiveness, Bhavanatita Sabhava Tirutale, being in that um in that uh, in our true state of being, which is beyond bhavana, that means beyond all beyond mental activity, that is meditating on anything other than ourselves is a mental activity. But if we meditate on ourselves alone, 
my, the, the mind which rose to think about other things will subside. So it is a cessation of mental activity, and it is a cessation of that which is which thinks, uh, which which is doing the mental activity. Um, so that so being in our true state of being by the strength of that self attentiveness. That is parabhakti tattva. That is the, the true nature of supreme devotion. So yes, very indirectly, if you worship God in name and form with true love, that will purify your mind, and sooner or later you will come to you will be willing to leave the anya bhava and take to ananya bhava because you understand that God cannot be anything other than I. Since he alone exists, what we take to be I, that is, uh, we ourselves, cannot be anything other than him. So the best way to meditate upon him, the most direct way to meditate upon him, is not to meditate on him in name and form, not to give him any name or form, and then meditate on those, to meditate on ourselves. That is what Bhagavan is describing in the second half of this verse. However, Knowing one's own reality, knowing the reality of oneself, thereby um, uh, dissolving and subsiding and dissolving in the reality of that true, of that real substance, and thereby being one with it, that is true seeing. So here in this verse, Bhagavan is contrasting two types of seeing. One is seeing in name and form, and the other is seeing in reality. If you want to see in name and form, then by all means worship name and form. By worshiping in name and form, you will see that's a way to see him in name and form. But if you want to see him in reality, then you have to investigate and know yourself. Because only by investigating and knowing yourself, the reality of yourself, will you subside and become one with that with the reality of that real substance. And being that real substance alone is knowing it. Alone is seeing it. Tanai iratale, tanai aridalam, as Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Upadesha India. So this is a very important verse, but it's an it's it's a verse that is easily misinterpreted because people naturally have a have a uh, they, a lot of people feel a natural affinity for worshipping in name and form. And there is no wrong at all in worshipping in name and form, but it is not the ultimate worship. Worshipping in name and form is Anya Baba. That is very good. If you do it with love, it will purify the mind. But better than Anya Baba is Ananya Baba, meditating upon him as I, as nothing other than oneself. That is what Bhagavan is talking about in the second half of the verse. That is the way to see him in reality. So very indirectly by worshipping him in name and form, it will eventually lead you to a path of, 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 of investigating yourself, but he talks about it in a second, and thereby it can be a means of, to, to know him in reality. But that is not what Bhagavan is saying in the first half of this sentence. In the first half, Sorry, in the first half of this verse, in the first sentence, what he says is very simple. Whoever worships in whatever uh, form, giving whatever name, that is the way to see that portal in name and form. Very, very simple. Simple, clear, and obvious. If we take, if we 
take that meaning, then the second sentence becomes very clear. The contrast, then the significance of word ayinum, however, becomes clear because he's contrasting two types of seeing, seeing in name and form and seeing in reality. So it is very important, not only that we read these verses, but that we understand them correctly. Because there's always scope with words for misinterpretation. The same words can be interpreted in different ways. As Bhagavan himself said, according to the purity of the Antakarana, the same teaching reflects in different ways. Bhagavan said that to Lakshman Sharma when Lakshman Sharma, um, uh, that if Bhagavan had explained to before Satdash and Bashir was uh, published, Bhagavan had explained to Lakshman Sharma that how Kapali Sastri and Kavyaganta, how they hated Advaita like poison and um and how they were tried to were would try to twist the teachings. Bhagavan already saw in the tran in Kavyaganta's translation of of um of uh, Satdarshana, so many places where the meaning had been distorted by his omitting crucial words, like in verse 13, he omitted the words real and unreal, or at least he omitted the word unreal. So it, that gave room for them to twist the interpretation of that. So Bhagavan had explained to Lakshman Sharma, even before he saw Satdash and Bashir, but they were going to misinterpret it. That was their aim, was to misinterpret it. So when Satdash and Bashir was published by the ashram in three languages, in Sanskrit, and in English, Kapali Sastri translated it himself in English, and Vishwanath Swami translated it in Tamil. All three versions were published by the ashram. So Lakshman Sharma said to Bhagavan, Bhagavan, you yourself told me how this is wrong. So, but you're not, but you allow the ashram to publish this. If this is published by your ashram in your lifetime, will not people in future think you've approved this? Bhagavan simply smiled and said, according to the purity of Yantakarana, the same teaching reflects in different ways. The implication is, according to the purity of their Antakarana, that's how they interpret it. That's how they want to interpret it, so they interpret it accordingly. And then Bhagavan said, if you think you can write a better commentary, you can write your own commentary. And Lakshman Sharma took that as Bhagavan's blessing. He then wrote his Tamil commentary on Uludunapadu, and he, in English he wrote uh, Mahayoga, in, which is not exactly a commentary on, on um, Uludunapadu, but it is, uh, he, he explains many of the verses of Uludunapadu uh, in that uh, Mahayoga. And later, when um, due to certain uh, uh, internal politics in the ashram, the ashram were not willing to publish um, Lakshman Sharma's um, commentary. Lakshman Sharma uh, published his commentary independently. And then one day, Bhagavan stood outside the window of the office. That is, Chinnaswamy's desk in the ashram office was facing, he had, his desk was so placed that he had his back to the window. 
So that window that was behind Chinnaswamy, one day Bhagavan just stood outside that window, very no, just quietly. So some and, other devotees may not know who is Chinnaswamy. Oh, Chinnaswamy means uh, Vasavadikari, um, um, uh, Niranjananandaswamy, Bhagavan's younger brother. Um, so uh, um, uh, uh, Bhagavan just stood outside the window, not saying anything. Someone in the office spotted Bhagavan there and and said to Chinnaswamy, Swami, Swami, uh, Bhagavan is, is there. So Chinnaswamy is terrified of Bhagavan. <laughs> he uh, he um, so he stood up and said, oh, "Bhagavan, Bhagavan, what is, what is it?" And Bhagavan said, uh, "Bhagavan addressed him because he's his younger brother. He addressed him by his pet name, Pichan. That was what how he was known as a as a young boy. So Bhagavan said, Pichan, everyone is saying Lakshman Sharma's commentary is the best commentary. Uh, why?" doesn't the ashram publish it? Simply that much, he said. Bhagavan didn't say it's his opinion, but it's the best commentary. He just said, everyone says it's the best commentary. Uh, why doesn't the ashram publish it? Just simple question. And Chinnaswamy understood what Bhagavan, was, what Bhagavan meant. So once he um, he agreed that he would publish it, he, bought, he asked um, Lakshman Sharma to hand over all the unsold copies that he had printed to the ashram. And then over the, it, it was originally printed by the New Light Publishing House. That's Lakshman Sharma's own publishing house in Puttakottai. Um, uh, um, uh, so he, he um, uh, Swami bought all the books from him and over the, the address of the New Light Publishing House, he published, he, he pasted a sticker saying published by the uh, Sabadikari of Raman Ashram. And so it became an ashram publication. So that's just a little aside story. But um, why why I say that story is that, uh, that, that illustrates the Bhagavan's attitude. When people misinterpret Bhagavan's teachings, Bhagavan will keep quiet. If, if Kapali Sastri had come to Bhagavan and asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, is my interpretation correct? Or if Kaviyaganta had come and asked Bhagavan, is my translation correct? Then he would have told them uh, where it's deviating from, his, from the uh, true meaning of his teachings. But they didn't ask, so Bhagavan doesn't say. When Chinnaswamy was offered these books for uh, publishing, in in Sanskrit, Tamil, and English, he thought that was just at the time, 1931, the ashram was just beginning to publish books at that time. So Chinnaswamy was very enthusiastic to publish anything. So he readily accepted to publish that. And, but he never went and asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, is this a correct translation? Is this a correct uh, um, uh, interpretation? He just took it for granted. Some learned people have written something. So... And it's all about Bhagavan's teaching, so we'll publish it. That's all Chinnaswamy knew. He didn't know about whatever, about whatever correct interpretation or the wrong interpretation. He's only interested in the, um, he's very dedicated to the management of the ashram and, to, um, he was serving Bhagavan in his own way, according to his own understanding. So he thought he was doing the right thing. Um, but, but, but because in, whenever you have a 
uh, an institution, there will always be politics. So even in Bhagavan's lifetime, there was so much politics in the ashram. So because of the politics, he refused to publish uh, Lakshman Sharma's commentary until Bhagavan intervened. That is very unusual for Bhagavan to intervene. Uh, but we cannot predict what Bhagavan... Generally, we can say Bhagavan will never intervene. But Bhagavan, we, we, we can't say anything for certain. There were times when Bhagavan did intervene for some reason. We, we, we can't say why Bhagavan intervened in some cases and not in other cases. But in this case, he intervened. And he clearly indicated to Chinnaswamy that the ashram should publish Lakshman Sharma's commentary. Um, so, I, as I say, I just say that but, uh, to put in context what Bhagavan said, but the same teaching reflects in different ways. So, if anyone trans uh, interprets this verse by saying that uh, worshipping in name and form is the way to see it without name and form, that is not the correct, that is not what Bhagavan intended. They are interpreting that according to their own um uh, uh, their own state of mind, because they're much attracted to worship of name and form, and they want to think that by worshiping name and form, they'll be, thereby be able to see them, uh, it without name and form. So that is why that's interpreted like that, but that is not the correct interpretation. So uh, I hope this is a, a clear. Uh, explanation of that verse. If anyone has any questions about it, please ask. Yeah, I have a trivial thing. Mm -hmm. um, the R, you know, in that a pair, a buruvil, a thinum, R pair with the V. What does that R signify? R means whoever. Oh, Arum. Whoever, okay. Whoever worships in whatever form, you given whatever name. Yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> The interpretation of the ill, not as illa there, but yes. inside that was that was very very you know superb. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, illadri is not entirely wrong. Yeah. But ilamal or iladu is entirely wrong. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Thank you, Michael. Um, so, with regards to the name and form. Um, didn't Bhagwan uh, uh, um, Sadhuam say that Arunachala, the name and form of Arunachala, has a special power compared to yes. all the other forms of God in helping us turn within? Um, and why is that? <laughs> uh, some things we can't we can't say why. It is just a fact. Um, that is Arunachala, but if we read the Puranic stories about Arunachala. For example, the story about the origin of Arunachala, how it appeared as a column of fire. It was to subdue the ego of Brahma and Vishnu. So Arunachala, every name and form of God has some special power. If you want, to, if you want wealth, you can worship Venkateshwara. He's the, he's the God to go to if you want wealth. Many rich business people in India, they they make Venkateshwara a partner in their business. So he gets a certain percentage of all their profits. That's why the Tirupati temple is a very, very wealthy, it's the wealthiest temple in India. So very different. If you've got difficulties, if you're facing many obstacles in your life, 
Who who is the person to go to? Ganapati. He's a special specialist in removing obstacles. So different names and forms of God are associated with different um, Power. special powers. But the name and form of Arunachala, and of course the name and form of Ramana, what are they associated with? Arunachala mena ahameinine pava ahatebe arupai Arunachala. In the very first verse of Akshramunlai, Bhagavan says, Arunachala, you eradicate the ego of those who meditate on you in the heart as I. That is the gist of that verse. So Arunachala is all about eradication of ego. And Bhagavan, as we know, all his teachings, whether he's Uludu Napadu or Upadeshundiya or Amavide or Nana or Akshramle or Patikam Navamani Malai Ashtakam, all of these, they're all about Bhagavan has Bhagavan is one-pointed. <laughs> His sole aim is the annihilation of ego because he has diagnosed what is the root cause of all problems is it's ego because or whatever problems we may face, those problems are problems for whom? It's only problem for ego. In sleep, there's no ego and no problems. In waking and dream, there is ego and there are problems. So the root cause of all problems uh, is ego. If we want to remove all problems, very simple. All we do is remove ego. So Bhagavan's teachings are all about the nature of ego and how to remove it. Uh, so that is the sole aim of Bhagavan's teachings. And Bhagavan is Arunachala himself. Arunachala, because Arunachala is always teaching this in silence, but we don't have the maturity, the, the, the pakfa, the, um, the, we, our minds are not yet pure enough, purified enough to understand the silent teaching of Arunachala. So it was necessary for Arunachala to appear in human name and form in order to give in words the same teaching that he is eternally giving in silence. Thank you, Michael. Um, so this is a question from a uh, devotee who wishes to be anonymous. Regarding desires, I hope I dropped some of them, but I still have a personal survival instinct. And that seems to lead to a desire for money, so I can achieve physical stability, food, etc. When I look at Bhagavan's eyes in his photos, I see a distinct lack of a personal survival instinct. This desire for personal physical survival seems to be the basis for other desires to spring up. What attitude should I have about the survival instinct? If you want to be free of desires, you have to be free of ego because it's the very nature of ego to have desire. Ego, as ego, we are always experience ourselves as I am this body. The bo particular body we experience as ourself may be different, but we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body. And as a body, we obviously, if this body is I, I want to survive. So I have to take care of this body. I need food, clothing, shelter. Um, and I don't want food, clothing, shelter just for today. I want some security. So I want to have some savings in the bank. I want to, I want to, instead of paying rent every month, I want to own my own house. And all desires, they, 
it's inevitable. If there's ego, there will be desires. Even though by following the spiritual path, we can reduce the strength of our desires to a very great extent, we cannot be totally free of desires so long as the desirer remains. The desirer is ego. So the only way, if you want to be free of desires, you need to be free of ego. Until you're ready to surrender yourself, to give up ego, you need to accept the fact you have to live with your desires. Nobody is totally free of desires. Of course, in order to be willing to surrender ourselves, we need to be willing to give up our desires. So on the spiritual path, we are trying to reduce the strength of our desires. The desires in their seed form are what are called vishaya vasanas. Vishaya means objects or phenomena. Sorry, everything other than ourselves is a vishaya. And vasan means inclination. So our inclination to seek happiness in things other than ourselves are called vishaya vasanas. Those vishaya vasanas are the seeds that give rise to likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on. So all these are inevitable so long as ego is there. It's a very nature of ego to have vishaya vasanas. As ego, we can we can reduce the strength of our vishaya vasanas by following the, the path Bhagavan has shown us, but we cannot be totally free of vishaya vasanas without being free of ego. So the only way, if you want to, if you're if having desires troubles you, you need to recognize what is the root of all the desires. You yourself, as ego, are the root of all desires. So if you want to be free of desires, you need to be willing to surrender yourself. How can we surrender ourselves? The nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by clinging to things other than itself, by clinging to the shares, to forms. So the only way to eradicate ego is to turn our attention back within to investigate who am I. When we turn our attention within, we are thereby trying to hold on to ourself alone. Since we're trying to hold on to ourselves, to the extent to which we hold on to ourselves, we are thereby letting go of other things. So the other things drop off, and eventually, if we hold ourselves firmly enough, we will subside back into and remain as what we always actually are, namely our pure being, our, the pure awareness I am. That is what we actually are. That is ever free of desire. So we, in, to be free of desire, we need to be free of ego. But in order to free ourselves from ego, we need to, to a great extent, reduce the strength of our desires. We can't give up desires just by thinking, oh, I want to give up desires. I don't want to have desire for this or that. It doesn't work like that. We need to follow the path that Bhagavan has shown us. By, but, but, as I say, the desires in their seed form are what are called vishaya vasanas. Vishaya vasanas seem to be very powerful, but they actually have no power of their own. But whatever power they seem to have is power that they derive from us. And how do they derive power from us? To the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by any particular vasana, that vasana is strengthened. If, if you have a particular inclination, if you're always indulging that inclination, the inclination will grow stronger and stronger. 
yeah, to use a gross example, supposing you have a liking for um for uh something chocolate or even let's say smoking smoking is a very dumb so when you have a liking for smoking the more you smoke the more difficult it is to give up smoking if you want to give up smoking you have to decide okay i'm going to stop smoking from today two or three days you may be able to avoid smoking then the urge becomes too strong and you smoke again but it's getting a little stronger that urge the only way to give up that urge to smoke is to steadfastly uh, refrain from indulging that inclination. The more you refrain from indulging it, the weaker it will become. After some weeks or months or years, the desire to smoke will completely drop off. And then you'll think, how did I ever have that desire to smoke? And smoking, taking this filthy uh, smoke into my lungs, what a disgusting habit. It will seem like that to you once you've given up that desire but the means to give up that desire is to refrain from indulging it if you if you allow yourself to go on smoking you are continuing to feed that desire and you can never give it up it is the same with all desires it's the same with all vasanas but to the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by vasanas we are investing our own strength in that vasana and that strength that vasana then seems to have strength over us i'm unable to give up my habit of smoking because it becomes so strong because we've indulged it so the only if you want to give up your habit of smoking i just use smoking as an example because it's a particularly obvious example i'm not saying that any of us are necessarily smoking but it applies to any type of desire we 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 can give up desires only by refraining from being swayed by them. The more we are swayed by our desire, the more we indulge with desire, the stronger that desire becomes, and the greater power it seems to have over us. Yeah, Michael, that was my question, and I just wanted mm. to follow it up with... Um, Specifically, surrendering ego means I'm also willing to physically die at any moment if that happens to be the course of events. And the vasanas that I notice and myself seem to be directly correlated to trying to physically survive. And I'm wondering that specific attitude I should take regarding holding on to a physical body. It is the very nature of ego to hold on to a physical body. Yeah. And, and that inevitably... So long as you take a body to be I, you want to survive. It, it is inevitable. We all we are all like that. We we may think that we have great um, tiaga, great renunciation, but if if someone holds our head underwater, how we will struggle to to um, to get a, a breath of air. So it is natural for us. So long as we take the body to be I, we cannot be totally free of desires. All we can do is by following this path, we reduce the strength of our desires until eventually, as our desires become weaker, our love to know and to be ourself becomes stronger. The, the seeds that give rise to the um, to desires are what are called vasanas. The opposite of vasanas is satvasana. Sat means being. So our inclination to know and to be what we actually are, that is sat vasana. 
as we follow this path more and more, the satvasana will be increasing. The satvasana is what makes us inclined to surrender ourselves, surrender ourselves as ego, in order to be as we actually are. So we just have to continue following this path until our love to know and to be what we actually are becomes all-consuming. And it will that desire will consume all other desires and eventually we'll be willing to surrender ourselves completely. And we will then turn the full 180 degrees within and merge back into our source. So and so long as ego is there, we cannot be totally free of desire. We can reduce the strength of our desires. We cannot remove the desires entirely. We have to that is why Bhagavan wasn't much concerned about desires. He wasn't much concerned about thoughts. He wasn't concerned about anything but ego. Ego is the root problem. Deal with that and all problems are solved. So just accept the fact. I mean, I'm not saying you should indulge your desires, but we have to accept the fact we have to live with these desires so long as we, as we rise as ego, because ego will always have desires of some kind or another. So yes, let, how let, we, let yeah. us focus on dealing with the root and everything else will be taken care of. And another beauty of Bhagavan's teaching, what is the means to eradicate the root, ego, is turning our attention within. This same practice of turning our attention within, which will er eventually eradicate ego, is also the most effective means to, uh, to weaken the Vishayabhasanas. Because any other type of practice, if you're meditating, say, on a name or form of God, even that name and form of God is a vishaya. So you may be giving up other Vishayabhasanas, but you're still you're not giving up all Vishayabhasanas. But by turning within and holding on to our being, we are not allowing ourselves to be swayed by any Vishayabhasana. And so all Vishayabhasanas collectively are weakened to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness. So the same means that will eventually eradicate ego is also the most effective means to purify the mind, to free the mind or to weaken the Vishayabhasanas and therefore uh, free ourselves from the hold that they have over us. Okay, I think that, yeah, that last, <clears throat> that last part helped to answer what, what the sticking point was for me. And I think what I'm hearing is that it just requires even more patience. Yes, yes. That's, <clears throat> patience is a part of the, I mean, without patience, we can never succeed in this path. But this path is about patient and persistent practice. Perseverance is, is what is all important. And to persevere in this path, we need to be patient because we don't know how long it's going to take. We, we have cultivated these Vishayabhasanas over countless lives. And now we are trying to unravel all the bondage that we've entangled ourselves in. So it, it, we need to be patient. It does take time. Okay. But if we, if we are patient and persistent, one thing we can be assured, we, will, we cannot fail in this path. But it is necessary to follow. Uh, that is, see, see, Bhagavan has expressed it beautifully in the 12th paragraph of Nana. He begins by saying, God and Guru are in truth not different. Then he says, just as 
the prey that is caught in the jaws of a tiger can never escape. So those who are caught in the glance of Guru's grace will surely be saved and will never be forsaken, will surely be saved by him and will never be forsaken. But he ends that paragraph by saying, uh, Aninum, uh, nevertheless, Guru Kartya Varipadi Tavaradu Nadakavendam. It is necessary without fail to follow the path Guru has shown. So success is assured by his grace if we follow this path, but we need to follow, we need to do our, he is doing everything for us, but we need to, his grace will save us, but we need to be willing to yield ourselves to grace. That is, this tiger called our guru is such a tiger, he will not swallow the prey until the prey is willing to give itself wholly to him. He will hold it in its jaw firmly, but he will not swallow it until we stop struggling. So if, when we are finally ready to uh, surrender ourselves completely to him, then only we are ripe enough, tasty enough to be swallowed by him. So okay, we have to go through this process. And it, this process takes time. It, uh, there's no, there's no, Bhagavan never offered um, self-realization um, weekends or self-realization um, uh, a week-long retreat and your guaranteed self-realization at the end. These are all gimmicks that people do nowadays, but it is self-realization is not such a thing that you can you can you you can do it and you can get it in a weekend. We uh, a huge amount of uh, desires and attachments we have cultivated in our heart. We need to be willing to to the extent possible to give up these in order to give up the root, namely ego. So it's a, this, this practice, why Bhagavan said persistent practice is necessary, because it's a process. We are slowly, slowly extricating ourselves from the bondage that we have created for ourselves. Right. Thank you, Michael. Um, that, that answers um, our question. Um, so there is a, um, I guess looking at the picture of Lindsay, uh, the next question came up here uh, from a devotee. Bhagwan Ramana is uh, is indeed my comfort. Um, it, um, to my limited mind, um, thought keeps coming up. How come Bhagwan, who is a lover of animals, sits on top of the skin of a tiger? <laughs> um, yes, that's a, not an easy question to answer. Um, that is, in, we can explain it in various ways. In those days, tigers were very much more prevalent than they are now. And it was the duty of uh, the Rajas and the Zemindars and the other the big landowners to uh, control the tigers. So sometimes if a tiger... Um, if a tiger was hungry and attacked a person, once it has attacked a person, it will continue attacking people. That's what they call man to tigers. So tigers presented a real danger to ordinary villagers in, in old times in India. That is, tigers were far more prevalent than they are nowadays, and they were a real danger. So part of the duty of uh, the Rajas and the big landowners um, was to uh, was to control 
the the population of tigers. So they did do they did hunt tigers and kill tigers. Um, that uh, had been going on for hundreds of years in India. Bhagavan doesn't condone that, but it is just a fact of life. Um, because they, tigers are a danger to people and to people's livestock also. So uh, it's it's inevitable that there will be uh, that people will will um, not necessarily try and wipe out all tigers, but at least um, uh, control the, the number of tigers. If, if if no one was killing tigers, then tigers would be would be preying on livestock. It would be preying on people, and there would be um, it would make ordinary people's life intolerable. So these things happen. These are just it, it's the the law of the jungle. That is, tigers themselves are, uh, uh, prey on other creatures. They they kill other creatures, so they get killed. It's it's couldn't say it's the law of the jungle, but it's just a fact of life. So there is a story about the tiger skin that was given to Bhagavan. Apparently, some some minor raja or someone he was hunting, and um, he was uh, he was hunting and he was trying to kill a tiger, and um when he was about to shoot the tiger his rifle jammed so the tiger was coming at him and he he if if he's not able to shoot the tiger the tiger's going to kill him so in his mind he said a prayer to bhagavan to protect him from this tiger and he made a sangalpa but if 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 he um if he if he survives he will give some donation to the ashram, and he will also give the tiger skin to Bhagavan. That was his, the prayer in his mind as the tiger was attacking him, was about to attack him. And at that moment, his rifle became unjammed and he shot the tiger. Something like that. I don't know the exact details, but it was something to that effect. So out of he in in his mind, it was Bhagavan who had protected him, Bhagavan who had saved him from that tiger. So he um he uh, presented the tiger skin to Bhagavan and he gave a big donation to the ashram. That is how that tiger skin came to be there. There is also a belief. You will see many pictures of yogis on deer skins. There are said to be different grades of yogis. So according to the extent to which they have controlled the mind, they are entitled to sit on the skin of different animals. That is a, a, a belief, an ancient belief among yogis. So but only the greatest of all yogis are entitled to sit on a tiger skin because that means you completely control the mind. So it has a it has a symbolism. Even in pictures of Lord Shiva, Lord Shiva's shown not only sitting on a tiger skin, he has a tiger skin around his waist as his clothing. Um, so all these, they had symbolic um, significance. So against that background, this tiger skin was given to, to Bhagavan. People requested Bhagavan to sit on it and take pictures. Bhagavan consented. The tiger was dead anyway. If the tiger hadn't been shot, that Raja, the person who shot it would have been killed by the tiger. So knowing that Bhagavan um, and knowing that the the sentiments of people and what they felt about that, but, but um, it's a very, uh, it, 
it has a lot of symbolism sitting on a tiger skin. So they agreed to that. We are seeing it. This this is something that happened um, uh, probably in the 1930s, I would guess. So about 90 years ago, this happened. Um, the world has, is a very changed place. The, the tigers nowadays, they're an endangered species. They were not an endangered species in those days. So the times have changed, attitudes have changed. Um, probably nowadays, if Bhagavan were here nowadays, people would have uh, would would feel hesitant to ask Bhagavan to sit on a tiger skin because they would be aware of how it would be viewed and that it wouldn't be it wouldn't look appropriate. But in those days, it didn't look inappropriate. Nowadays, it looks to us inappropriate. Thank you, Michael. Um, you addressed this question. There's another question that just came up. Um, you, you addressed it earlier today, um, but I'll read it again so if there's any additional insights. The name and form of Bhagwan seems to have a special power to help and encourage us to turn within. For example, in the song Sri Ramana Namame by Sri Sadhu Om, um, he sings that that which takes us to that state, meaning the absolute supreme reality, is only Sri Ramana Nama. So, what's your thoughts on it? Yes, definitely. Because when we say the name Ramana, what does it bring to our mind? It brings Bhagavan to our mind. And when we think about Bhagavan, what is Bhagavan's teaching all about? His teaching is who am I? So, that name Ramana has a power to turn our attention back within. And and also, that is, names do have their own inherent power. It's not just the faith that we have in that. It, the, uh, mantras have their own power. Every word has its own power. So a divine name like Ramana does have a power. And as I said earlier, different divine names and forms are associated with different um qualities that is uh, if if you want certain things you worship certain gods so if you want a god who will annihilate your ego that god is arunachala ramana so the names of arunachala and ramana have that special power to turn our attention back within and thereby enable us to eradicate ego Thank you, so there, there's, there's no doubt about the, the greatness uh, and power of the names of Arunachala and Ramana. They, that is, um, they, and they, they do have their power, but we need to understand what that power is. That is a power to turn our attention back within. So we must be willing to turn our attention back within then we will be fully benefited by those names they will have that they own they can turn our attention within only to the extent that we're willing to turn our attention within but the speciality about bhagavan and arunachala is that they work in our heart making us willing to turn within right thank you michael um nalini asks Hi, Michael. Thank you for the in-depth clarification of the difference between theistic religion and the spiritual philosophy of Advaita. The one aspect that I'm curious about is Gautama Buddha's teaching of Sunya and the Advaitic teaching 
of reality as Pundram. I am pretty certain that the, that the Buddha and Bhagwan were in the same exalted state. So why do we see a diametrically opposite description? Um, firstly, we, we, in the case of Bhagavan, Bhagavan wrote his own teachings. So we know exactly that Bhagavan has given the, all the fundamental principles of his teachings, Bhagavan has given in his own writings. So we need have no doubt about what Bhagavan has taught us. In the case of Buddha, not the, Buddha didn't write anything. In, even his, his, so his teachings were all oral, and his oral teachings were not recorded in writing immediately. They were passed down by an oral tradition. It was only after a few hundred years after the lifetime of Buddha that his teachings were written in the Pali texts and in various Sanskrit texts and so on. Um, so. The, the teachings were passed down by word of mouth. That means, if supposing Bhagavan hadn't written anything, supposing nobody had recorded what Bhagavan had said, supposing it was just handed down by word of mouth, even those who were present in Bhagavan's lifetime recording his teachings often didn't record accurately because they were recording what they understood rather than what Bhagavan actually said. Um, so, but inevitably, the, the teachings of Buddha will have been, to a greater or lesser extent, distorted. We don't know exactly what Buddha said because it was passed down as an oral tradition. And that means from generation to generation, if, if, each generation will be passing on what they heard from the previous generation. So the previous generation will tell what they understood. And... Uh, then this generation will tell the next generation what we understood of what they understood. So things get distorted over time, inevitably, because very, very few have the ability to clearly understand the words of the Jnana Guru. Among the devotees of Bhagavan, the, those who really understood what Bhagavan's teachings were about, those who had a really deep understanding, were relatively few. Most people, most of those who were around Bhagavan, they had only a fairly superficial understanding of his teachings. So if they had been passing uh, on the teachings, they, it would inevitably have been distorted. So we don't know exactly what Buddha taught. That's one thing to, to, um, to say. The other thing is, Teachings are given, as Bhagavan said, there's no such thing as teaching on mass. Teachings have to be according to the to the pakva, the maturity of those who are being taught. So how Buddha presented his teachings would have been in accordance with the grasping power of those who were around him. So he may have expressed things in a certain way, because that was the appropriate way for those who were there at that time. So it, it, and that is what got passed on. He may have given deeper teachings to others, but were never recorded. So we don't know exactly what he taught. Regarding Sunya and Purna, we can reconcile these two. That is, what is real is Purna, it is fullness. But it is devoid of all phenomena. So, uh, 
for example, Bhagavan says in verse 12 of Uludunapadu, verse 12 is the, um, is the verse in which he says, Parandru, it is not a void. But he begins that verse by saying, uh, or something to that effect. That is, the awareness that is devoid of awareness and ignorance is awareness. What does that mean? It means that awareness, which is devoid of awareness and ignorance of other things, is the real awareness. So, it, being devoid of the awareness of other things is, um, means it's devoid of all phenomena. So, it is a void in the sense that there's neither subject nor object there. So, in that sense, from the perspective of ego, yes, it's a void, because I'm not there and none of my um, familiar phenomena are there. So, it's a void from the perspective of ego. But from the perspective of the reality, it is fullness. So, to say, in a certain sense, to say it is void and to say it is full, they are not contradictory. If they're understood correctly, it is it is a void in the sense that it's devoid of both subject and object. It is fullness in that it is the fullness of what actually exists. Subject and object are both unreal. So being devoid of them is not really a void. So we 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 need to go beyond the words to understand what is behind the words. But of course, teachings will always be misinterpreted because people, we are coming with our finite minds trying to understand teachings about that which is beyond the mind. So inevitably we will misinterpret things. That is why we are very fortunate that Bhagavan wrote his own teachings. So however much they may be misinterpreted by others, we can always go back to the original and think about what, what Bhagavan said, what did he actually mean? That is, for example, this verse 8 that we talked about today. Many people have misinterpreted it as uh, that is the way, uh, worshipping in name and form is the way to see it without name and form. Supposing we have a doubt about that, how can it be so? Is that really what Bhagavan meant? If that's what Bhagavan meant, seeing it without name and form is seeing it with re, uh, in reality, then why does he say I in him? Why does he say however? So we can go back to the original and we can think about it. Is this actually what Bhagavan is saying? And then we can say, oh no, maybe Bhagavan didn't mean without name and form, maybe he meant in name and form. We can make sense of it and we can reject the wrong interpretation. So we are very fortunate to have Bhagavan's original writings. Even after a thousand years, people can, however many commentaries are written by however many people, whether accurate commentaries or inaccurate commentaries, it doesn't matter. We can always go back to the original. So when we read any commentary on Bhagavan's teachings, when we read what anyone says about Bhagavan's teachings, when you listen to what I'm saying about Bhagavan's teachings, you shouldn't be saying, oh, Michael has said so, it must be true. No, you should think about it yourself. Is what Michael's saying is reasonable? Is what Michael's saying, is, it, is that actually what Bhagavan meant? You need to read, think carefully for yourself and come to your own conclusion. We shouldn't accept things just because someone has said so. Right. Um, thank you, Michael. Uh, uh, does that answer your question, Nalini? 
Yes, very much so. Thank you, Michael. Right. And the only thing I'd like to ask you, you said um, the subject and the object are unreal. Yes. I thought, uh, I, I understood that the subject was the reality. No. The is subject... Incorrect. The subject is ego. The, the subject has an element of reality in it. That's why Bhagavan says in this verse, tan unmeine, that means the reality of oneself. Oneself there means ego. So we have to see the reality of ego. Later on in the verse, in verse 14, he says, tan meyundel, if the first person uh, uh, um, uh, exists, munile padekegel, tam ula arm ula bam second and third persons will exist um tanmayin unmaye tan aindu tan may arin if the first person ceases to exist by one's investigating the reality of the first person so what we when we are investigating ego we are not investing we are in, what we are to investigate is the reality of ego that is ego is if the adjunct mixed awareness, I am this body. Uh, what is real in ego is I am. What is unreal is the body. That is why ego is called chit jada granti. The chit aspect of ego is I am. The jada aspect is the body. That's why in Maharshi's gospel, in one place it's recorded, Bhagavan explains that ego is the chit-chadagranti, and he says, in your investigation into the source of the ahambriti, you take the essential chit aspect of ego. And so it will certainly lead to the, to the, to the pure consciousness that you actually are. So ego as such is unreal, but it contains an element of reality. So ego is the subject. That is, that which knows all objects is only ego. So what we, ego as ego is unreal, but there's an element of reality in it. It's like the, the snake is unreal as a snake, but it's real as a rope, because what it actually is is a rope. It's not a snake, it's a rope. So ego is real as pure awareness, unreal as ego. So long as it seems, as, so long as we seem to be ego, we are unreal, but that we are identifying ourselves with that which is unreal. When we see ourselves as we actually are, we will then only we will find that we are what is actually real. That that is that fundamental awareness I am. So it's very important to understand, but the the reality is beyond both subject and object. The reality is the reality of the subject. That is all objects exist only in the view of the subject. So objects derive their semi-existence from the semi-existence of ourself as the subject, as ego. Ego is also unreal because, as he, Bhagavan says in verse 7, that his ego is what he refers to there as Aribu, the awareness. He says, though the world and awareness, that means the world and ego, appear and disappear simultaneously, it is only by the uh, ego that the world shines. That is, the world appears only in the view of ego. But ego also appears and disappears. So ego is not real. What is real 
is the base from which that um, that which shines without appearing and disappearing as the ground or the base or the uh, the the place for the appearing and disappearing of uh, uh, ego and the world. That alone is poral. That alone is the reality. So the poral, uh, what we actually are, is not the uh, subject. Is, subject is ego, but poral is the reality of ego. Is that a Thank clear you, answer? Thank you very much for clarifying it's, that. Thank it's you. very, very important to understand this, the distinction. that It's not that there are two eyes. There's only one eye, but that one eye, when mixed and conflated with adjuncts, it is called ego, and it is only that ego that knows other things. When ego is destroyed, everything else is destroyed. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludunapdu, If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Everything there means all objects, all phenomena. Ego means the subject. So, if the subject exists, the objects will seem to it. Only if the subject comes into existence, the objects will come into existence. If the subject doesn't exist, the objects won't exist. But the objects exist only in the view of the subject. But both appear and disappear simultaneously. So what is the underlying reality of the subject? That's what we want to know. We can't find the reality in the objects, because so long as we're seeing objects, we're looking away from ourselves. So, there's no reality to be found in the objects, but reality is to be found in the subject. That's why we have to turn our attention away from the objects, back within, to see who am I. Right. Then we go beyond this, we, 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 the subject subsides and the underlying reality alone remains. If you look carefully at the sn snake, what do you see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. Likewise, if we look very carefully at the subject, ego, we find its underlying reality. It is not ego, it is just pure awareness. 